Psalm 40. Can you believe it? Another psalm this morning. Kind of been on a on a, on a little bit of a streak here, I know. But uh, this time we're not going to do the whole psalm. We're going to change things up with psalms, but we're not going to go through the whole psalm. I found plenty to do in four verses that I didn't go any further. Aren't you glad? Because I think, uh, how many points have I got? Too many? Um, seven? Yeah, I quit. <laughs> when we got that far. But uh, Psalm 40, and then we're just going to read the first four verses as a text this morning. Psalm of David, it says, I, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Now it's my sermon. The, the title I put on this is a new song, and that's how I kind of got into studying this. Was uh, doing a little bit of study. We'll talk about that in a second. But talking about new songs, I like old songs. I like old songs. You know, just like we're just saying, I, you know, old Mosey Lister songs are hard to beat. But you know, old is a is a subjective term, especially when it comes to music. You know, when I was growing up, back in the dark ages before the internet, you know, it's a, it's a dark time there in history. Uh, but uh, but when I was growing up, I remember listening to 98.7 K-Love and the oldie station. And if you flip over there today, they don't play the same music. Man, when I, when I was there, it was Beach Boys, it was, you know, all these, these uh, you know, doo-wop and things like that. And uh, grew up, you know, listening to a lot of that and, even if I do mess up, Skeeter Davis and, and some of that, like I did, I was giving Don a hard time about that. I messed that up. Y'all didn't catch that. I, I had the wrong singer on that song. I had Brenda Lee instead of Skeeter Davis. And I knew that. I just, you know, couldn't do that. But today, you turn over to 98.7, and it's oldies. They still say we're oldies, but the problem is they play music I remember coming out. I remember when these Michael Jackson songs came out that they that they play on there, and not that I don't listen to it a ton, but flipping through the state, I like to just flip through stations. It drives my wife nuts. I like to just flip through stations, and uh, she's not in here, but Bill, I'm right, uh, I'm right, yes. Uh -huh. And uh, but anyway, you know, they turn over there now, and it's it's like I say, it's songs from the '80s. I'm like, I remember when that came out. So therefore, I'm going to reassert, I am now officially old. Because I remember when the oldies came out. So, Jack's been arguing with me. I'm not old yet. I, that is proof. I'm old because the oldie station plays music that came out since I was born. So, yeah. <laughs> so, actually, I used to know the legend format that I really like. That's even older than oldies. Anyway, uh, what is old? Now was once new. The great hymns of the faith that we cherish, uh, you know, they were once new psalms. Uh, some people didn't like them back then either, so it's fun to study some of that out. And Isaac Watts, he's kind of, uh, in fact, he's in the, the, uh, the bulletin again this week, but uh, he's kind of the standard for those traditional hymns that were written there you know, around 1700 and a little bit after that. Uh, but when he first started publishing hymns, he, he faced opposition. People didn't like them. Uh, some people didn't, anyway. And uh, they they called his songs cheap doggerel. And that's a 
world-class poetry and uh, uh, ugly hymns. They, they called me saying, now, he wasn't writing a new musical style. It was what he did, though, was they, they sang the psalms. They would, uh, they're called metrical psalms. They would put those rhythm and rhyme. They'd rewrite the psalm. That's what you have in the bulletin, by the way, one here. And uh, uh, they would do that. Well, then he started writing hymns that are not connected to the psalms, you know, just kind of new songs. And it was kind of controversial. It wasn't a new music style, but uh, it was a debate whether you could sing lyrics that were either based strongly in Scripture or if you could sing ones that are just, you know, kind of more loosely based on Scripture truth. You know, I, I, I've been accused of not liking new music just because it's new. It's a really an absurd accusation. Uh, I'll say that the canon of Scripture is closed. There's 66 books in the Old New Testament. There's no more Bible being written. That's it. But the canon of Christian music is still is still open. It's not closed. We can and we should write new songs. Some will make it into the tapestry of church music. Uh, others will not. New songs come and go, and old ones are rediscovered and forgotten. Love to chase that rabbit a little bit more, but just uh, thinking on the, the idea of a new new song. Nine times in Scripture, this is where I kind of got off on the Psalm 40, but nine times in Scripture you will find the little phrase, new song. Psalm 33, and I'm not going to read all these for the sake of time, but Psalm 33, verse 3, there's a new song of praise for the greatness of the Lord. In Psalm 40, verse 3, it's a new song of praise for the deliverance that God gave. In Psalm 96, 1, it is a new song of praise for the anticipation, or anticipating the coming of Christ. In Psalm 98.1, it is a new song of praise for the victory of the coming Christ. In Psalm 144, verse 9, it is a new song of praise for the goodness of God. In Psalm 149.1, it, it is a new song of praise for the care of God towards Israel. In Isaiah 42.10, it's a new song of praise for the coming Messiah. In Revelation 5, verse 9, it's a new song of praise for Christ who is worthy to open the seven-sealed book. In Revelation 14, 3, it is a new song of praise from the 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses, Jews, who were redeemed and sealed and brought out of the horrors of the tribulation period. Those nine Times you see the phrase new song in scriptures all nine times it's a new song of praise interesting uh, there's all kinds of different songs you can have songs of praise you can have songs of lament I mean you can have songs across all kinds of different topics and things but every time the phrase new song is mentioned it's tied to praise sometimes it praises God for who he is Sometimes it's for what he's done. Sometimes it's just anticipating what he's going to do in the future. Yet in all nine, there's a tie, I think, between the praise of God and the deliverance that he has given. Now, I don't have time to get in there. I want to get on in the sermon. That's your homework, okay? Y'all can look all that up, the nine, those nine verses. And, and you can spell this out. I can, I can give you. I can, I can give you the list if you want. Them. But I think if you study out all nine of those references in their context, and most of them in that single verse, you will see praise and deliverance put together. And um, 
By the way, that's not something strange. I thought back to Exodus 15 when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt and they made it to the Red Sea and there they are. They talk about being trapped between a rock and a hard place, being trapped between Pharaoh and the sea there. And then God delivered them. They came through the Red Sea and then the waters fell and they never be seen no more is the way the old quartet song says it. And, uh, but as they went through there, what did they do? Well, they sang a song of praise it's called the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. And uh, it's an amazing thing. They're safe on the other side. Their enemies have been drowned in the flood. And Moses writes a new song. Something they couldn't write before because the details of it are way too specific. Example, uh, just verse 1. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sink into the bottom as a stone. They're just celebrating the victory that God... Like I said, they couldn't write that before. God didn't give them prophetic knowledge of what was coming, but this is something they looked back, they saw what just happened, and did they have songs? I'm sure they probably did. We know Moses wrote a few, but here he takes the time to write a new song celebrating the deliverance of God. Nowhere is that connection between praise and deliverance so personal and so powerful as the opening verses of Psalm 40. Here, David describes himself in a, in a terrible situation. And no, I don't think he's literally stuck in the mud. I've been there. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's speaking figuratively. He's talking about being in a terrible, dangerous place. And we'll, we'll, I'll get more into that here in just a second. But um, I like the way there's a, there's a hymn written, I think it's 1898. And uh, I like the way it was uh, expressed in that. It said, My heart was distressed neath Jehovah's great frown, and low in the pit where my sins dragged me down. I cried to the Lord from the deep miry clay. He tenderly brought me out the golden day. He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on the rock to stay. He puts a song in my soul today, a song of praise. Hallelujah. Anybody, ever, anybody know that one? Anybody ever sung that? Okay, Annette's nodding her head, so I'm not completely crazy. The inspiration is good, but they make it a bass lead. It's really good. Anyway. But God deserves praise no matter what happens but he deserves it infinitely more from those he has delivered. Got to move our hearts to express our praise in such a personal way that no, one's else, no one else's words can do. Sometimes you, you ever go to the uh, card aisle at Walmart, i got to find just the right card. It's got to say just the right thing. And I've done that before and realized I can't find one that says what I want. I've got to get a blank one because I, I've got to put my own words on this. I think it ought to be that way with us and God. There's times, hey, the, the songs of old, the, the poetry, the uh, words of the Scripture, some of those things are adequate. Sometimes they're not. And sometimes you just got to sing new praises to God. Now, We'll quickly look. I've got eight, eight things. I think I've only got seven uh, from uh, from these first four verses of Psalm 40. 
on the themes of deliverance and praise. First off, I want you to see the perseverance in verse number one. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. The fun little fact, the Hebrew right there says, in waiting, I waited. It means I'm like double waiting. <laughs> That's how Hebrew uh, expresses itself, by doubling things. But it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I thought back, uh, what if Joshua, and Joshua, what he'd been told, said, go march around Jericho seven times on that last day. What if he had got to number six and said, you know what, I'm tired of waiting. God didn't do anything. I'm done. What about Naaman, who had been told, hey, go go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. What if he got to time five or six and said, no, this is worthless. And if he had given up a little bit too soon. Uh, persevering to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep pressing forward. Waiting doesn't mean to be idle. It means to be active. It means to prepare to do our part. Think of the words Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 9. He talks about that we'll reap our harvest, but only if we faint not, only if we keep going, only if we keep persevering. We cannot give up. We cannot lose hope. We must keep trusting and working and keep calling on God. So we have perseverance. Second half of verse 1, we see the prayer. It says, He inclined unto me and he heard my cry. Further proof that he's, David wasn't talking about waiting is this kicking back on the front porch and propping his feet up with a glass of lemonade and just taking it easy. No, he says, I've been praying. I've been crying out to God. As he's trapped in this predicament, he's actively calling out to God. Now, I'm going to show you something. I, I love, I love this. Look how God acts here. It says, He inclined unto me. He's stretching out close to me. You ever been talking to somebody and you can't hear them very well? What do you do? You, you lean forward. When somebody's going to tell you something important, what do you do? You lean forward so you'll be able to hear it. How God is answering our prayers, hearing our prayers here, is described. He is leaning forward to hear our prayers. He wants to hear it. So, oh, he knows everything. He's everywhere. Yes, but this is talking about, this is that desire, his heart. He wants to hear our prayer. You know, sometimes sit back, and I know I've used this before, but sometimes sit back and watch the kids, and they'll be doing something, and maybe moving something heavy, although the boys are catching up with me on some of that, but uh, watch, you know, the kids do something, and they'll sit back and say, okay, all they got to do is ask me, and I could help them. But they watch them do their thing until they finally, you know, putting something together or fixing something. Or It used to be video games. They used to come with me and say, Dad, I can't beat this level. Can you help me? They quit doing that. Uh, I'm really missing, but uh, I'm not the video game expert I once was. So it's not Super Mario Brothers anymore, so it's a little hard to catch up. But anyway, I'm dating myself very badly in some of this stuff. But you know, God is sitting there just like that. He's just waiting. Hey, I want to get I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting. You want me to please? I'm listening. I'm not. I'm leaning forward. I don't want to miss it. How God is eagerly awaiting our prayers. I love that picture there in those words. He inclined on me. So you have the perseverance. You have the prayer. Verse 3, you have the problem. He brought me out of a horrible pit. 
now the miry clay. Now thought about this. David, he's an outdoorsman, not like modern day outdoorsman. This, but he was really an outdoorsman. What was he? He was a shepherd. He had spent so much time out on the wilderness, in the hills, uh, traveling around, taking care of his sheep. He was a warrior. He had been out on campaign. Think of all the times he was hiding from Saul in caves and all these different things. He, he was a true uh, outdoorsman. And I, I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know what? I think he's describing one of the great fears anybody who's out there by themselves might have. That fear of being stuck in a situation you can't get out of because you're all alone and you have no hope. Out alone there in the wilderness, and he's fallen down into a pit. And they talk about, the Bible talks about, you know, there's places, there's you know, holes, there's caves, there's things that people would sometimes fall into. I couldn't help but think of Lassie and Kimmy falling down the well, you know, Lassie having to go get help. Sorry, rough this morning. But he's fallen down in this pit. He's trying to get out, but he cannot get out. He's got mud up to his up to his knees. He, the, the sides of this pit, they're just slimy, they're wet. Trying to climb out of a creek bank or something, and you can't get a grip. You just keep sliding back down. That's kind of a picture he's painting. Like I said, I don't think he's talking literally. I think he's trying to describe a situation here figuratively. That he is trapped. He cannot get out by himself. He can't fly out. He can't build a ladder. He can't make a rope. He doesn't have a grappling hook. There's no way he can climb out in his own power. So there he is. He's in this pit. It would be his grave if someone does not hear his cry for help. It's a place of despair and hopelessness. I kind of thought back again. Think about the Israelites there trapped between the army and the sea. Just uh, just a... think there's no escape trapped but I'm so glad that whatever pit I find myself in by the way I probably dug it myself that's the way we work but God can get me out of whatever pit I find myself in there's no pit no prison no problem no pain no penalty no plight no persecution or any other frightful thing whether it starts with a letter P or not that God cannot deliver us from what we have to do is just be patient and pray and watch for God to move. Fourth, I want you to see the placement. I had a hard time with the P word on this one, okay? The placement. It says, and set my feet upon a rock and establish my goings. God brought me out of the pit and He's placed me on a safe and secure place. I like the old saying, uh, simple description or definition. It said that mercy is not getting what we deserve because sometimes we deserve punishment. We deserve judgment. But grace is getting what we do not deserve. This is the this is the bonus. This is the extra. Well, God in His mercy pulls us from the pit. He says, yeah, I'm going to get you out of that. That's mercy in action. He's saving us from something that we, we deserve. But then, here's the grace as He places us on solid ground. He puts us on the rock. We talked a little bit about that last week, Psalm 61-2. David prayed to God, said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's a place of safety and security. A place next to God Himself. 
and God plucks us from the pit and he plops us down. I almost used plop with this, but he plops us down right there on the rock next to him. Remember how God brought Israel out of Egypt? He delivered them. In his mercy, he brought them out of Egypt. They were no longer slaves. But in his grace, he took them to the promised land, the place flowing with milk and honey. Oh, this place where he places us, it's a place of blessing and stability. It's a place we can never get to on our own. And it's a place that he blesses us through his grace. Next, we have the praise. Continuing on. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. By the way, this ought to be our reaction. When God does something, it ought to just fill our hearts with praise. Our ears see it, our ears hear it, our fingers touch it, our minds comprehend it, our hearts celebrate it, and our mouths can't help but singing out His praises. Now, I'll point out something here that uh, kind of occurred to me. That praise is not expressed as a just a, oh, thank you, Jesus, and it's over. It's not, it's not just one phrase. It's not described as a cry. It's not even described as a shout. Well, people like to shout, you know. They're their own camp meeting. Well, people like to shout. But it's not described as just shouting the praises of God. It's a song. A song is not something that usually just comes flowing out. Now, I've read about some very gifted songwriters that can pretty much, as they say, Fanny Crosby could just about do that. Some of her great hymns she wrote like in 15 minutes. Uh, not everybody's like that. <laughs> I've, I've tried my hand at songwriting a couple times. I, I kind of like to try it again. I kind of feel like it's convicted. Somebody needs to. But uh, I've tried my hand. You don't just sit down and make the words rhyme. Tell you what you have to do to write a good song. You have to get that in your mind. and You have to roll it over your mind. Uh, the term I like to use, and I was, I was telling this at the, when I was filling in teaching down at Norris, uh, marinate. That's my word. You have to marinate in your mind for a little bit. You got to work it over. You got to think it over, uh, and, and you carefully construct the words and the descriptions, and you paint these word pictures. You know, I could just say, for example, like you Psalm twenty-three. I could just say, "Hey, God takes care of me." That's a true statement. But put that in the picture of Psalm twenty-three: "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." And that enhances it. That's David thinking about, boy, God's been good to me. He's like a shepherd. There's a lot of thought, a lot of processing that goes along with that. Let me explain it this way. We've got three dogs at the house, and um, they, they don't uh, they don't spend much time uh, savoring their food. They 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 devour it. Uh, Bentley's gotten where he likes to get things off the counter, too. And, you know, if you leave a piece of pizza up there, he's going to get it. And uh, we had some chicken in the bill up there one day. He went back and said, hey, did somebody eat all that? No, he had got up there and got it all. But, but they, they don't savor it. They, they just, boy, they, they devour it. But compare that to a cow. What does a cow do? They, they go out there, they graze, they chew the grass, they swallow it. And then a little bit later, they start chewing the cud. And they work on it a little bit more, and then you know what they do a little bit later? They chew on it a little bit more, and they there's a lot of processing that goes on. 
what I'm saying is, when you're talking about writing a song, this isn't something done quickly. This is something, there's a lot of meditation. There's a lot of thinking that's been going on. This kind of praise that's being described here, it, now, thank you, Jesus, I'm ready to move on. This is, oh boy, I can't get this out of my mind. It's rolling through my head, and I just keep, can't, I can't get it off my heart. And I want to express my praise in the highest form I can. I'm not just going to throw this out. I want this to be beautiful. I want it to have that beauty and rhythm and rhyme. And I want to paint this picture with it. There's a lot to go. This isn't just a simple thank you. This is a really well thought out expression of praise that's given here. It's expressed by heart and soul and mind. And the sixth thing here, we have the proclamation there in verse number three, many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Here we see that the praise is not just between a person and God. It's not private. It's it's public. It's praises that are given out before people. Our families hear them. Other believers hear them. And most importantly, unbelievers. I've been been doing a lot of thought on this lately and just the power of art and the power of story and you know it's why Christ taught in parables. I was using Psalm twenty three as an example, how that picture it paints just takes that truth to new level. Same thing with Christ in the parables when when he would talk about uh, think about God's forgiveness, you think about the prodigal son, you think of it it's why you use this form. Uh, to to um, to express these truths. Uh, it's why the Psalms are written like they are. In art and story, they take a truth and they amplify it. They make it more accessible. They make it more relatable. They make it more palatable to us. Like I, said, I, I know I know the fact. I know the truth. God loves me. But look at Psalm 23 and that that picture of the good shepherd brings that truth home in such a, a powerful way. Think for a moment about the power of story. Think about this. We all love a good story. Why do we watch murder mysteries on TV? We like a good story. Why do we read books? We like a good story. Uh, We're just drawn to... Why do we like history? We like a good story. Uh, Human beings, we are just fascinated by a good story. I've seen storytellers before. They don't have... Slides, they don't have music, but I've seen storytellers stand before a crowd of people and just have them spellbound. You know, even the audience of little kids in elementary school just have them spellbound, hanging on every word because it's the power of story. The most powerful stories are true. No work of fiction or drama can, can ever match a true story. That's why it's so important that we testify of what God has done and praise Him for it. We need to tell our stories of what God has done to those around us. Other believers need to be encouraged by it. They need to hear. Hey, let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you about this blessing. Let me tell you how He moved. It strengthens each other's faith. The next generation 
We tell the next generation what we saw, what we've seen, what we've experienced to help mold them, to help train them up in the way they should go in the words of Proverbs. But most importantly, we need to tell the loss because the loss needs to be drawn in by it. I've seen all kinds of things, little gadgets and whatever to, to help share the gospel. I've seen, you know, gospel tracks and uh, different presentation tools. The wordless book. Anybody ever seen the wordless book with all the different colors? This represents sin. This represents the blood. This represents heaven. Uh, we used to make there for a while. I remember there was a thing you make the little bead bracelets and put those colors, you know, and it was uh, like a like a mini track there on your arm. That was kind of a big thing. I remember when I was little. There's all these different things. And people say, well, where, I wouldn't know where to start. I wouldn't know what verses to use. I'm going to tell you something we all can do. We can all say, you know what? Let me tell you what happened to me. And we tell the story. And by the way, that's one of the most powerful things you can do is to tell your story, your testimony. You know, not everybody can be a preacher. Not everybody can be a teacher. Not everybody can be a singer. Not everybody can be a piano player. Not everybody can do whatever. But everyone can tell the story about what God has done for them. And the last thing, number seven here, is the principle. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside the lies. Here we have, you can tell, I love the Psalms, and when you really start thinking about it, this is not random, this isn't, this isn't poetry that you just made stuff rhyme at, went to school with the guy, his, his masterpiece of a poem was, roses are red, violets are blue, my dog is brown, and I like golf. That was his masterpiece of a poem. This isn't random. This, this isn't just making things rhyme. This is, this is uh, coming from the heart of David as he's meditated on these things and put them down and thought about it, and the spirit working in there. It, amazing process if you just stop and think about it. But this is next-level analysis, what he does right here. He doesn't just describe what happened. He didn't just describe how God delivered them. But he's observed in what God did an eternal truth. thought about science and the story, of, the story that's told of Isaac Newton. He was sitting underneath an apple tree and an apple fell down. And he goes, oh, there's gravity. Uh, well, that's kind of a simplified version. But, you know, they, they, there's the story about that, that he saw the apple fall and he got to think about gravity, but that sparked something in him. I thought about the story of Archimedes, and I always liked this one. But he was uh, he got in the bathtub, and the water rose, and he, and he discovered. By the way, they don't discover it because it's always around, but they just figure it out. But uh, he get, the water displacement. So when you put a body, you know, by mass, you put it in there, and it displaces the water, and all this stuff. And uh, anyway, these, these great scientific uh, principles he discovered because he got in the bathtub and noticed the water went up. And uh, by the way, the rest of that story is, is that he ran out, it's got to put a towel around him, and was running around town yelling, Eureka, Eureka, I mean, I found it, I found it. He was quite the, uh, you know, wild scientist kind of guy. Uh, that's ancient Greece, Syracuse, wasn't it? Uh, but David here, he's like a scientist. He's using the scientific method. He's observed something. He's observed God's deliverance. He has a theory that those that trust in God are truly blessed. He tests that theory in all his observations of others in, in his own life. 
And the theory proves true. It is a fundamental law of the universe, just like the law of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics. This is a fundamental law of the universe. Blessed are they that put their faith and trust in God. You can trust in wealth, it disappears. You can trust in friends, they forsake you. You can trust in family, they'll desert you sometimes. You can trust in yourself, you will falter and fail. But if you trust in God and God alone, that's where true happiness, peace, contentment, all the blessings are. Blessed is the person who trusts in God. Put God to the test and He will be proven faithful. You can try them out, by the way, Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. Just try it out. Give it a taste. We do that sometimes with our kids. Like, oh, I don't like that. Just taste it. You might like it. Just give it a test. They tried to do that to me too, and I don't listen. So, <laughs> but, but they said, just taste it. Just try it. Just test out God. He's faithful. He's true. Just try it out. You'll find out. By the way, this is in my notes. But what did Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what did they do? When they're in Daniel chapter 1, they said, hey, here's all this meat and stuff, all the stuff they weren't supposed to eat as Jews. And they said, and they said give us a test. Give us, give, us a few, give us a few days. Let us eat what we want. Then put us to the test. We'll see if we're healthier. We'll see if, we're, we'll see if our test grades are better. And by the way, they were, and it proved God true. But they were put to the test. Put God to the test. He will be proven true. By the way, you can, go, you have test, you can just watch other people. Observe it around you. Psalm 37, 25 and 26. I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. <laughs> he says, I've watched, I've observed, and I've seen this principle to be true, that God blesses those who trust in him. God's always proven true. He's always proven caring. He's always proven to be faithful. Those that trust in Him will always be blessed. Musicians come quickly. Four quick thoughts to wrap this up. First off, I want to say you need to be prepared for the pit. You need to be prepared for the pit. Hard times will come. You've got to prepare your heart. Make up your mind. That when things get wrong, things are going badly, that you're going to call on Him. Have that. We make emergency plans. You know, well, if this happens, we'll call this person. In case of emergency, anybody have an ICE contact in your phone in case of emergency? That used to be a thing people would do that. In case of emergency, uh, well, make up your mind. In case of emergency, first part, I'm going to God. I'm not going to wait. I'm going to go straight to Him. Be prepared for the pit. Second, praise God for what He has done. Because I guarantee He's done something if you open your eyes and look. To give Him the glory He deserves for what He's done. Third, put God to the test. Just put Him to the test. Try Him out. Think of all those master's companies and things. They'll say, hey, 30, you know, 90 days, not 30 days in home trial. You get this and we know you're going to like it. You know, all those tests. Well, I'm telling you, put God to the test. You're going to like what you find. You're going to like what you see. But most importantly, 
We need to place our trust in Him for salvation. That's all it comes down to. The God who delivers us from the pit is also the God who delivered us from the eternal punishment of hell. And by the way, if He can deliver us from that, everything else is nothing. If He can deliver us from the penalty of our sins, everything else is academic compared to that. Think he can't take care of a little financial problem? Think he can't take care of some heartache, of some sorrow? Oh, that's nothing compared to what Christ has already done for us. It all starts when we trust in Him and Him only for ourselves. That's where the blessedness starts. That's where the blessedness starts is when we come to Him in faith for salvation. That's where it starts. Step one. Make sure you're taking that first step. You'll stand by the time of the invitation. What number there, Owen? 109 there in the heavenly highways. 109. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my goodness, this, this message has uh, just been eating me up uh, it's been working out the last few days. Uh, Lord, just uh, thinking about your goodness to us, thinking about how we ought to praise you, thinking about how that praise should be exalted. Lord, thinking about how that blessedness comes to those who trust you. So many wonderful, powerful truths. And we're just scratching the surface of this song. Lord, thank you for these wonderful truths. I, I pray that something in here, you know, many things have challenged my heart. I, I pray that these, these have been a challenge, an encouragement, a blessing to those who have gathered here this morning. Speak to us, challenge us, press these truths into our hearts and minds here this morning in the invitation period, I pray. In the holy name, amen.